History This Week, September 16th, 1965. I'm Sally Helm. The word had gone out through local DJs on Spanish-language radio and through notices in the newspaper of the National Farm Workers Association. On Mexican Independence Day at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church in Delano, California, there's going to be a big meeting, something important to discuss. So 500 farm workers and their families have shown up. They're sitting in pews and on balconies, waiting to hear whatever there is to hear. Everyone knows that tensions are brewing in California's Central Valley. About a week earlier, a group of Filipino farm workers walked off the job. They're led by a man named Larry Itliong, and they're protesting bad working conditions and low wages. There are a lot of Filipino-American farm workers in Delano and the surrounding towns, but the majority of workers are Mexican and Mexican-American. So if the strike is really going to work, these groups need to come together. And the striking Filipino workers have asked for support. They've come to the National Farm Workers Association, a group of mostly Mexican-American workers led by Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. Chavez later said, quote, All I could think was, oh God, we're not ready for a strike. There was only about $100 in the bank to support striking workers. Huerta and Chavez and other leaders like Gilbert Padilla, they've been organizing and preparing, but they thought they had more time. Now they have to make a decision. Quickly. So on September 16th in Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, they put it to a vote. And the workers decide, unanimously, to strike. With that, a new phase begins in what will become a five-year struggle on the farms where much of America's produce is grown. And that struggle will reach far beyond the farms, to grocery stores in New York City and shipyards in London, and even the battlefront of the war in Vietnam. Today, How did a small group of activists organize a strike and then expand that strike to a national boycott of grapes? And what can their work teach us about how to build a successful multi-ethnic movement? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Professor Matthew Garcia is an expert on labor movements and Latinx history. He now teaches at Dartmouth. And when he was growing up, you would not find a grape in his household. I love grapes. Uh, (laughs) I didn't eat grapes growing up because I grew up as a good Mexican-American in Southern California, observing the grape boycott. My family are Mexican-Americans, and uh, my grandparents were farm workers. And so I was very conscientious of the boycott. Garcia ended up studying this moment later in life as an academic. And he eventually did start eating grapes again. 
but he never saw them the same way. Grapes are a strategy for social change, and that was impressive to me. And I felt like in all the history I'd learned, I hadn't learned exactly how the boycott worked and how Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and Gilbert Padilla and all these people that I've learned of since made it happen. Chavez and Huerta and Padilla and others did their work in California's Central Valley, where much of the country's produce is grown. Asparagus, almonds, walnuts and avocados, citrus was grown there. And, of course, grapes. Grapes were really popular and there was expanses, large expanses of acres that you could grow on a, almost like a plantation type setting. Many of the workers on these huge farms are Mexican-American and they have deep roots in this region. Mexican people had been coming to the American Southwest or El Norte to them before there was a line separating that area. And so it is a kind of native lands in some ways. Farmers knew the land and how to work it. After Mexico's 1910 revolution, many rural farmers were displaced by the tumult, and a good number of them moved north. They came north because it was familiar to them, and they also came north because their labor was of great value to that burgeoning economy. They were recruited, they were wanted, and they really found themselves useful, they found themselves comfortable. And so many of them stayed. By 1920, at least 75% of farm workers in California were Mexican or Mexican-American. Many also stoked the racist idea that these workers were biologically suited to difficult farm labor, which often involved stooping down close to the ground. They used this thing called a short-handled hoe. It created incredible back pain and back problems because you're bent over because the handle is short. They presumed that Filipinos and Mexicans were biologically predisposed to using those instruments. And so there's this way in which racism is built into the kind of technology that is imposed on workers to use in farming. When the Great Depression brought many poor white farmers to California, anti-Mexican sentiment really grew. And between 1929 and 1939, the U.S. government began mass deportations, repatriating Mexican-Americans to Mexico, even though many of the people deported had been born in the United States, had never been to Mexico. But then in the 1940s, World War II meant that there was a new shortage of labor on farms in California. And so the Roosevelt administration started something called the Bracero Program. It brought guest workers from Mexico to the United States, but these workers would only stay for a short period of time they could be paid a lot less, and that if they became a problem, could be shipped back to Mexico. This undercut the ability of Mexican-Americans to organize unions because the growers could just go to the, the guest worker. By the 1950s and 60s, other labor unions are well-established across the U.S., organizing miners and auto workers and others. But farm workers are in a real bind. Labor laws don't protect them. The work is often short-term and far-flung, so it's hard to get organized. Plus, the Bracero program means that workers have even less bargaining power. But there is a real need for them to band together. Because farm workers are getting paid really badly, and living conditions are often terrible. Shanties and shack-like structures. There was a lack of running water. Oftentimes there was a lack of uh, sanitation. But organizing has proved really tough. 
until some new activists come on the scene. One is a man named Cesar Chavez. Chavez had been born in Arizona. His family had lost a farm in the 1930s. He had been to the Navy. He was a zoot suitor at one point. Wait, what's a zoot suitor? Oh, a zoot suitor was someone that sort of protested the war by wearing extravagant baggy clothes. This was World War II. The government was after everyone to save cloth, and some men, mostly Black and Latino men, said, hey, why should we contribute to this effort abroad when you've treated us so unequally at home? And they wore these baggy suits in protest. So there's a little bit of a kind of defiance there and a rebellion in him. But all those things added up to someone who is very familiar to a Mexican-American who's been beaten down and has lost a lot in their lives. In the 1950s, Chavez starts working for a group called the Community Service Organization, or CSO, that fought for Latinx civil rights. And over time, he starts to think that they're focusing too much on urban issues. So he told the organization... If it was going to achieve the goal of Mexican-American empowerment, they had to go where the Mexicans were, and they were in agriculture. The CSO isn't quite sure that that's what it wants to do. And so Chavez decides to do it on his own. In April 1962, he moves his family to the small town of Delano, California. There, he's going to live among farm workers and begin to organize them for better working conditions. Chavez is joined in Delano by another activist who had been working with the CSO, Dolores Huerta. Dolores gave up a lot. She had children and she had her family up in Stockton. And Dolores left that to come and join Cesar. Huerta was a real force. She was always talked about, especially by her foes, by her enemies, as fierce, as formidable, as just dogged. People that she wanted to recruit. Like, she didn't just gently persuade them. She really, really twisted their arm. (laughs) So she was kind of the enforcer and played that role throughout the farm worker movement for Cesar Chavez. I mean, Chavez really relied on her to get things done sometimes in a, in a really kind of rough-and-tumble way. Another important activist at the beginning was a man named Gilbert Padilla. Who was affable, who was tall and handsome. And when he spoke, he was presumed to be Cesar Chavez until they realized, oh, wait, Cesar Chavez is that short man over there who's soft-spoken. Chavez was known for this more quiet leadership style. In some ways, he was much different from the the famous leaders of the 60s, like most notably Martin Luther King, who gave you know famous speeches that people still quote today. Most of Cesar Chavez's speeches were in these quiet little homes in Delano and throughout the San Joaquin Valley that only a small group of people witnessed, and that was his charm. The activists set up an organization called the National Farm Workers Association, or NFWA. And this was a major part of their strategy, the house meeting. They'd go door to door. To get people together to think about and and talk about what's challenging them at this moment in their lives and what they want in their communities. Without the presumption that they were going to pitch anything, a, a solution to them. It was as much listening as it was saying, okay, well, here's some strategies for changing the conditions of your life. Just kind of getting a sense of what it is that would move them to political action. 
The early activism was all about these conversations among groups of people who shared a common interest. One story that always captures what it was like in those early days was the meeting of Gil Padilla with Filipinos in Filipino Hall. Most workers in Delano were Mexican or Mexican-American, but the workforce was diverse, and Filipino-Americans made up a large percentage. At Filipino Hall... They cooked very specific meals whose ingredients were very hard to find, and Gil talks about wanting to forge this alliance with the Filipinos and going to Filipino Hall and eating fish head soup with the Filipino organizer, Lariat Leong. And it was almost like a, a kind of, if you use the Catholic image of breaking bread, well, they were sort of breaking bread, but it was fish head soup that they were doing it over. And it's kind of beautiful in a sense that it captures how the movement was reliant on this racial understanding, right? The bridging of, of two different cultures. While Huerta and Chavez and Padilla are working and organizing and having house meetings among Mexican farm workers, Filipino farm workers are also organizing. And Garcia told us they tended to be more radical on the whole. Many had come from communist families or communist backgrounds. They had migrated throughout the Pacific Northwest and down into California. So the Filipinos respected Cesar Chavez. They respected the power and numbers that, that Mexicans had. But they understood that they were the more radical. On September 8, 1965, three years after Chavez and Huerta and the NFWA began organizing the Mexican-American workers, the Filipino workers take decisive action. The Filipinos went out on strike in a much more forceful and aggressive way, in a much more committed way, forcing Cesar Chavez now to say, OK, am I going to join them or are we going to stay separate from them? Eight days after the strike begins comes Mexican Independence Day. This holiday celebrates not the end of colonial rule in Mexico, but the beginning of the struggle against it. And the National Farm Workers Association holds a meeting on that day in Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. Chavez gets on stage and talks about Mexican independence. He says, quote, We Mexicans here in the United States are engaged in another struggle for the freedom and dignity which poverty denies us. He calls for nonviolence and says that today they have to make a decision. Will the Mexican workers join the Filipino workers in the strike that has already begun? The vote is a unanimous yes. And so the next day, Mexican farm workers begin a strike. They're going to stop picking grapes until they have a contract that will ensure better pay, plus things like a health and retirement plan. Soon, they go out in picket lines on strike. But they face some difficulties. When you're picketing a farm that's many acres long on these kind of rural highways, it has little effect, right? No one knows it's happening. There aren't a lot of people passing by. And so unless there's media attention, there is really no public acknowledgement that there is a strike going on. And the growers knew this. And so they felt like they could outlast the UFW. And they felt like a strike on a farm in the middle of rural California is not going to succeed. Plus, it's hard for workers to stay out on strike for months on end. Many of the workers were 
living hand to mouth. And so they really needed to work. So the activists start recruiting volunteers to come join the picket line. Students and ministers who may never have been to Delano. The extra support helps, but it's still not that many people. The organizers need another tactic to get national attention focused on this issue. And that's when the boycott came into play. The boycott. At this point, the strikers are really focusing on one major company that grows grapes, the Shenley Corporation. And they decide to enlist other unions to help them boycott Shenley products. They block those products from getting loaded onto ships or transported in trucks. But they were boycotting everything that these growers put grapes into, including wine. And wine is not really perishable. In fact, it gets better with age. So these boycotts aren't yet having the impact that they could. And meanwhile, the strikers are facing pushback, not just from the growers, but also from law enforcement. The Kern County Sheriff is arresting picketers, even those who have done nothing illegal. In the spring of 1966, the country gets wind of all this in a big way when Robert F. Kennedy comes to Delano. And it's not just a question of wages. It's a question, a basic question of hope for the future. As part of his visit, Kennedy questions the Kern County Sheriff. Well, uh, if I have reason to believe that there's going to be a riot started and somebody tells me that there's going to be trouble if you don't stop them, then it's my duty to stop them. And well, then I... you go out and arrest them? Well, absolutely. And charge them? Charge them. What do you charge them with? Uh, violating uh, unlawful assemblage. I think that that's the most interesting. Who told you that they're going to riot? I, the men right out in the field that they were talking to said, if you don't get them out of here, we're going to cut their hearts out. So, so rather than let them get cut, you remove the cause. How can you go arrest somebody if they haven't violated the law? They're ready to violate the law. In other words... Could I suggest in the interim period of time, in the luncheon period of time, that the sheriff and the district attorney read the Constitution of the United States? This encounter makes good TV. The public is paying more and more attention to the farm workers. And around the same time as Kennedy's visit, Chavez and others organize a massive march to the state capitol in Sacramento to bring more attention to the cause. The march to Sacramento is uh, an incredible moment of cultural affirmation, particularly for Mexican-Americans. And it, it kind of undermined, uh, for a time, Filipino-Mexican coalition because it was framed as a pilgrimage with Catholic overtones, with the Virgin de Guadalupe at the front, with songs uh, to have these cultural symbols and these religious symbols that are familiar to people have the effect of pulling new members into the movement. But the Filipinos start to feel like, uh, well, you know, we were the ones that started this whole thing, and where are we in this, right? So it's also a moment where uh, the Mexican culture begins to overshadow the multi-ethnicity of the movement. But it is during this march that the strikers win their first major victory. The Shenley Corporation agrees to a contract. It is a huge step forward. But the movement is really just getting started. After all, Shenley is only one company. The workers, under an organization now called the United Farm Workers, 
turn their attention to a much bigger boycott on grapes. The perishable ones. The ones that, if they're not loaded onto ships, will sit on the docks and rot. They felt like, okay, if we tried to stop grapes in every single place where grapes are sold, we would be stretched too thinly. But we could handle sending armies of boycotters to 10 cities and try to convince people not to buy grapes. So this new strategy, a nationwide boycott, begins. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The organizational energy behind this new phase of the boycott is Dolores Huerta. Here she is in a speech in Sacramento recorded by KQED Television. We may act in strange and unusual ways in our organizing, but we're willing to try new and unused methods to achieve justice for the farm workers. Dolores Huerta was incredibly important here. She goes to, uh, to New York and she figures this all out. First, she tries to convince the Seafarers Union to blockade grapes moving from New Jersey to Manhattan. And then what the grape growers do is they file an injunction against the Seafarers Union so they're in violation of Taft-Hartley. They are, of course. In case you're not as familiar as Matthew Garcia is with the Taft-Hartley Act, it's a piece of legislation from the 1940s that created all kinds of restrictions on unions. One of them is you can't have a secondary strike. Basically, you can't rope another union into your strike. Well, Dolores Huerta says we're going to take the battle right to the storefront. And it was often in, in the parking lots where people were coming in to park their cars, and that's where they would confront consumers. All they have to say is... Don't buy grapes. Very simple. It's a very easy, straightforward appeal. And then the question might come back, why? Oh, I'm happy you, you asked. Let me tell you what their pay is. Let me tell you how they live. Sometimes their strategy goes beyond the parking lot. They would take balloons that were filled with helium, but also filled with confetti that had UFW symbols on them. And then they would let them loose inside the market. And when the manager would come in and say, you guys get out of here, you got to go, kick them out. And then they'd pop the balloons and the confetti would come down on the customers and throughout the market. And they'd have to sweep it up and have, you know, UFW and Viva La Causa and just different ways of sort of creating mayhem and mischief. The activists even set up these boycott houses in the cities that they're targeting. They're kind of like flop houses for the activists so that they had a place to rest or even sleep 
and uh, they became these really important social scenes um, that were inspirational. They were um, probably uh, conjugal, (laughs) 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 but they were also, you know, incredibly important places for strategizing. They'd work out, you know, the narratives and the, the pitch. The pitch is working. After a year of boycotts in these 10 cities, which were the top great markets in the country, they've been able to cut sales by at least 33%. The growers start to feel the heat. They shift to other markets, places like Kansas City or Denver. They try Canada. They even send grapes across the Atlantic Ocean to London. But UFW-aligned activists there help prevent them from being unloaded. The growers do have support from some very prominent people. Famously, Richard Nixon sent grapes to the front line of the Vietnam War. California Governor Ronald Reagan eats grapes at public events in defiance of the boycott. But none of it really matters. The growers really just finally realized they could not outrun the boycott. The boycott had become a global phenomenon, and the only way to have this go away is to uh, sit down at the table with Cesar Chavez and, and sign the contracts. On July 29, 1970, nearly five years after the strike began, the UFW signs a collective bargaining agreement with the Giamara Vineyards Corporation and 25 other growers. This is the first time that farm workers are recognized as having collective bargaining rights, that the union can represent them. But more importantly, because GMR was the biggest grape grower in the valley, other farmers also agreed to sign contracts soon thereafter. For all intents and purposes, grapes were harvested by unionized workers that were represented by the United Farm Workers, a, a union. And that had never happened prior to that moment. The Delano grape strike was a watershed moment in labor history. It was also part of a broader civil rights struggle in the late 60s. But Matthew Garcia says when he looks back at it... The farmers' movement was anomalous in a good way. They kept the good feeling of intercultural understanding and what could be achieved by, you know, crossing lines of difference to build a a more unified movement than any other movement in America at that time. The foundation of the Delano grape strike was that coalition between the Filipino and Mexican farm workers. As long as they're together, there's nothing that can defeat that movement. And I wish we had that kind of spirit today. But we are a society divided, and we we run to our corners, and we really probably seek too much strength in one aspect of our character as opposed to the ways in which we're stronger by sharing in a kind of diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-faith society. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a one-month extended free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device with new videos added every week. To start your free one-month trial, 
visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.